It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 60, The Captivity of the Ark of the Covenant. Sometimes a prophetic word takes only a moment to occur. Other times it takes years, even hundreds or thousands of years. But the word regarding Eli and his sons didn't take long to take effect. They will meet their fates in battle with the Philistines, who will be attacking Israel with a large army that may have been sent against Israel in retaliation for Samson's destruction inside Gaza. Another escalation of the greater war between the two nations, Israel and Philistia, which will be waged from around the time of Samson to David. But before we get to the conflict, let's continue the account of the very godly prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel 3.19 The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all of Israel. Isn't that incredible? The Lord was with Samuel, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. This in essence reads to me, every one of Samuel's prayers was answered. None of Samuel's words were of the wrong spirit. Could that be said of you and me? How powerful. None of our prayers fell to the ground and died. All of your prayers and words were answered. At this point, he was attested as a prophet and honored by the people. Next, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh to him, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So it's important here to note Samuel's training and what made him great. He had relationship in his calling, and he balanced his experience from the last episode with the knowledge of the word. The Lord appeared to him and revealed himself, and then he revealed himself through his word. It said at Shiloh he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Now, he was a man of the word. He knew the scriptures and the law and the prophecies over Israel, but he knew relationship first. What a balance Samuel had. God revealed himself via his voice and face first and followed it by his word, which brought knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to Samuel. He was a truly balanced believer, a prophet, and a teacher. But judgment must come to the sons of Levi who perverted justice. 1 Samuel 4 Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Apek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the field. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Israel deployed at Ebenezer, north of Jerusalem. In the first engagement, 4,000 Israelites were killed. 
They believe if they get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle, like Joshua did, they would win the next day's battle. So they sent men to fetch the Ark. It's really crazy to consider what's going on here. They don't even pray and ask God for deliverance. They put their faith in the Ark, even over God. They missed the mark with this one. Joshua carried the Ark into battle, but he was ordered by God to. The Israelites think they can just obtain victory without inquiring of God or praying. They think the ark is some form of a lucky object that sets them apart. Totally missing it, God was what separated them from other peoples. They were putting their faith in the ark over God. They even broke the law by entering the Holy of Holies to bring out the ark. The result was disaster. What's going on here is that the Israelites were really, really into idolatry. It's like this entire scene is the full manifestation of their idol worship. It reminds me of the crazy age of relics in medieval Europe, when a good Christian did his pilgrimage to the holy sites where relics from the age of Christ supposedly existed, thinking that it brought them closer to God. Like these relics carried more power than anyone who walked with Jesus in their heart and in power in this time is a mystery to me. Well, these relics turned into objects of worship, where no doubt some revealed them more than Jesus himself. When objects become the thing that is worshipped over God himself, then it becomes idol worship. Israel at this time was filled with idol worship, and it was a mess to live in Israel right now. Everyone did as they saw fit, and the daily sacrifices which atoned for sin were being treated with contempt, and sin was not being atoned for, especially the sin of idol worship. So this is where we see the true manifestation of judgment. Everything was rising to that to the surface. Idol worship had to be judged. Israel's enemies were coming to attack because the hedge of protection was being lifted from Israel because of this cycle of sin. And there was no crying out and true repentance to prevent the catastrophe from befalling them. It never says that Israel cried out, but they decided to bring in the ark of God to protect them and bring them victory. They were asking the ark, not God, to bring them victory. If victory came because of the ark, it would be because of the ark, not God. For this reason, victory could not be given. 1 Samuel 4, 5 When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? There are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all types of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Interesting how the Philistines knew their history so well, possibly more than the Israelites did. Interesting how they encouraged themselves to be men, be strong, be men. Isn't that the greatest compliment that the world can give at times? Be a man. Be a man. It was God who told Joshua to be strong and courageous. He didn't tell him to be a man. Well, the Philistines, they crushed the Israelites. The end of this battle, I like to compare to the end of King Saul, where he desired to speak to God so badly after so many years of being his enemy, killing God's priest and turning his back on God and pursuing the death of David, that he ran to a witch to call upon the dead Samuel to seek God's favor. 
Like this battle, it was a last resort attempt to save their life. Saul resorted to witchcraft. Now here, Hophni and Phinehas, what they saw as an idol, they called upon to save them. 1 Samuel 4, 10 So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran away from the battle and went to Shiloh, where he saw Eli sitting in a chair at the city gate. At this point, Eli was 98 years old, nearly completely blind, and horribly overweight, when a Benjamite, which some scholars claim to be the future King Saul, but others don't believe he was even born yet, flees from Shiloh. Eli asked for news of the battle from this Benjamite who's running up to the city gate. And the Benjamite tells him the bad news of the battle, his two sons and the ark. And when Eli heard the news of the ark, which was captured, he fell backward and broke his neck. His daughter-in-law, which was pregnant with Hophni's son, went into a traumatic labor at seven months, according to Josephus. And when she heard the news, as she was dying from the labor pain, she gave birth to a son and managed to name him before she died. His name was Ichabod saying, The Lord has departed from Israel. Seriously, what trauma. Israel is currently being conquered by those awful Philistines. Shiloh will go on to be burned, as recently confirmed archaeologically, and Eli and his sons were dead. Most likely Samson's dead at this point, too. And the only hope for Israel was a young Samuel, who must have fled for his life as well. As the Philistines ravaged the country, all was in despair as the Philistines raided the country, plundered, and did the standard ancient horrible things that conquering nations did back then. I imagine young Samuel running for his life, escaping near death, and possibly fighting hand-to-hand -hand in a few places just to get away. And we'll find out later, Samuel was not afraid to use a sword. But the rest of the episode, we're going to cover a most dramatic account of what happens when the enemies of God's people think they are victorious over the God's people. The ark had become an idol to Israel, but it has become a prize to the Philistines now. But let's leap forward over 3,000 years and discuss what most people think about when the Ark of the Covenant is brought up. And in case you're wondering, I'm going to do it. We have to talk about Indiana Jones. In 1981, Steven Spielberg produced a movie starring Harrison Ford, who played Indiana Jones, an archaeologist and adventurer, who was hired by the U.S. government to find the Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis did. The scenes raged from the Far East to the Middle East and Egypt to Greece. The movie went on to win four Oscars and was incredibly popular throughout the world. In the movie, Indiana Jones discovers and loses the Ark of the Covenant to the Nazis. But the adventure continues as he chases the Nazis to recover the Ark. For the Nazis wanted the Ark because, to them, whoever had the Ark could rule the world. But then again, where did they learn that from? From the Bible, in the account of the fall of Jericho. But whoever believed this failed to read further into the next verses of our story. The Ark will go on to nearly destroy the Philistines, for its power was not a superstitious entity 
that gave power to its holder. No, no, no. And nor was it a prize to be had. Let's talk about the Ark. Here's a refresher on the Ark from Rose's Guide to the Tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant rested in the most holy place. A thick veil separated it from the rest of the holy place. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where God met and talked with Moses in Exodus 25:22. The Ark was the first item of furniture constructed after God told Moses to build the tabernacle. It was made of acacia wood and covered with gold. The Ark of the Covenant was intended to be the central focus of the most holy place in the tabernacle and later the temple, according to Exodus 40. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place once a year during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and on that day the high priest would sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where two winged cherub faced each other to atone for the sins of the people. God set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark and stand before him to serve him and to bless his name. Upon the top of the Ark, where the two cherubs were, it was called the mercy seat. And upon the mercy seat, God promised to be present upon the mercy seat, according to Exodus 25. The mercy seat was a kind of portable throne, carried along the poles of the ark and complete with a canopy of angel wings. The cherub faced the seat, the center of the seat, while their wings overspread it. The mercy seat was the ultimate place of appeal for God's grace. It was a place where once a year the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice from the bronze altar. Only on this day, in a precise manner, was God to be approached in the most holy place, and only by the chosen high priest. Today, when Jesus, our great high priest, was made once for all time his sacrifice, we are urged as believers to boldly approach the throne of grace. So let's keep this in mind from Exodus 25:22 that God promised to be present upon the mercy seat. If this is the case, when the Philistines have the ark in captivity, with it was God. Though the ark was alone without any Israelites, God was there and no doubt thousands of angels were present, ready for any demons which empowered God's enemies. So back to Indiana Jones. So when the Nazis steal the ark in the final scene, they determined to take its supernatural power and keep it for themselves. In an act of sacrilege, the ark is opened and death breaks loose in the Nazi camp in a horrific end to the Nazis. Obviously, the Nazis failed to read their Bible and what happened to the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5, which you're about to cover. And when the Nazis opened the ark to make themselves eternally powerful, it only opened up the judgment of God and death upon them. Being a fictional account, in a movie of course, no doubt the scriptwriters were fully aware of what happened to the Philistines when they foolishly took their prize, the Ark of the Covenant, into their cities. The similar scene came over the Nazis at the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So back to Philistia around 1100 BC. As the Ark was headed in the first Philistine city, what the Philistines missed was this point. The Ark of the Covenant empowers those who believe and are faithful. But the ark destroys those who don't believe in God. It's almost like the ark is a manifestation of the fear of the Lord in the rawest extent. The ark of the covenant accelerates judgments on the one who possesses it. And judgment was coming to Israel's enemies. 1 Samuel 
5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Isn't that cool? When no one was there, not a single believer in God, God can stand up for himself. I mean, we can see, if we could just see in the Spirit at this moment, it must have been a showdown. God himself and his angels warring with the demons of Ashdod. It must have been crazy, sleepless night of insane spiritual warfare in Ashdod. And the winner, no doubt, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the fish god Dagon, idol, in their temple, had to submit before the ark. So I guess the Philistines thought they would try again, and they even propped up their god. 1 Samuel 5, 4 But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. This is why, to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The following night, according to the description, it appears the Lord himself came down upon the threshold and slayed Dagon, severing the man parts from the fish parts of Dagon. Nasty, huh? It was just a statue and an idol, an object of demonic worship, but in the spirit, another night of insane spiritual warfare. Something must have happened at the threshold, for even the priest of Dagon could not step foot there. Kind of sounds like Joshua or Moses. Take off your shoes, for this place is holy ground. Back to Dagon. Remember that Hebrew scripture we applied with Judge Ehud? For the word of God is powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing the bone and the marrow. Here is Dagon, half fish, which represents the spirit world, and man, which represents the fleshly world. Half demon, half man, little g God, weird-looking dude. God is separating the power behind the Philistines. The spiritual demonic empowerment behind them was being separated in the night hours, and the result was catastrophic to the fleshly Philistines. Their demonic protection and empowerment was completely lifted and torn through and separated. It's interesting if you compare what happens next to the plagues of Egypt. 1 Samuel 5, 6 The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and inflicted them with tumors. It said devastation was upon them and they were afflicted with tumors. These tumors, if you look them up in the Hebrew, here is the definition of the Hebrew from Strong's Concordance. Tumors, comma, hemorrhoids, comma, piles. Wow. Most scholars believe it is what it says, and the tumors referred to here were hemorrhoids, which was just awful. They had a plague of hemorrhoids in their city. The account continues, 1 Samuel 5, 7. And when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and our God Dagon. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. 
He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. Now Gath is getting destroyed from within. Note here, Gath is where our future Goliath and his brothers come from. Some call it the city of the giants. A great panic was going through the city, and hemorrhoids as well. There's a lot of debate as to the panic and the death that came upon the Philistines. Some suggest it was an early form of the Black Plague, which is interesting if you consider the Black Plague hit Europe at the time the greatest concentration of relic worship in Christian Europe, which could tie the two together if you're interested in parallels in history. The extent of the destruction, plague, death, and hemorrhoids was horrific in Philistia, so Gath in desperation sends the ark to Ekron. 1 Samuel 5.10 So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought the ark of the God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of Philistia and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. The Lord's hand was very heavy on it. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. It's interesting, they never mentioned Gaza directly receiving the ark, probably because not long ago, during the time of Samson, Gaza incurred a massive population decrease with the falling of the Temple of Dagon in Samson's final act. After seven months of having the Ark in Philistine territory, the Philistines have had enough. Note here, the Philistines were having a horrible time wherever the Ark was, so most of them probably fled their cities and went elsewhere, some going to the seas, others to the north, some to the east, into their conquered land in Israel, for they still held Israel as their conquered possession despite the horrible plagues. Garrisons are situated in Israel, and the subjugation of the land was continuing, despite the horrible plagues at home, because we will find the Philistines will be quick to go to war when there is any question of their authority over Israel. We see very soon how the Philistines have a fight in them still, despite the destruction wrought by Samson and the time of the travels of the ark through Philistia. 1 Samuel 6 when the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means send a guilt offering to him, and then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What gift uh, guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make the models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country, and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? And when Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites away so that they could go on their own way? Now then, get a cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it in the cart, and in a chest beside it put the gold objects as you are sending back to him as a gold offering, guilt offering. Send it on its way. 
but keep watching it, and if it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. Check it out. Their gift and offerings to God of Israel was five golden tumors, <laughs> five golden hemorrhoids, that is, and five golden rats due to the plague that was sweeping the land. Disgusting. Being very spiritual people, they insist on not taking the leaving of the ark easy. So the Dagon priest and witches made a recommendation to hitch cows to the ark and take away their calves. For a nursing mama cow to go in the opposite direction from her calves towards Israel, then it had to be God. Cows can be crazy stubborn and protective of their calves. For them to be willingly going in the opposite direction, it had to be the Lord. 1 Samuel 6.10 So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned, them, pinned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with its chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the ark, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on a large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So our episode concludes with an amazing thing, the return of the promise of God's presence coming back to Israel and a tragedy as well. But we'll get there. For the seventh month, Ichabod's season had come to an end. So check it out. The field the cows returned to was the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, which was a clear hidden message that the presence of God was coming full circle. Remember the Nazis and even the Israelites, Hophni and Phinehas, thought the ark could bring them power and glory and victory, but instead it brought them defeat. They got this from the great victories that Joshua achieved through, through his time. But what they failed to realize that he was a man of faith and courage and bravery and faithfulness to God. It was his faith that brought him victory, not the use of the ark. The ark returning to the field of Joshua symbolized the end of the season of Ichabod and the return to the promises of God. The glory had returned to Israel. They would have to pray and believe and fight for it, but the glory had returned for Israel. No longer was it in a foreign land. The priesthood would be reconstructed and relocated, and Israel would soon renew the sacrifices and Levitical practices. Here's the sorry part, though. We can't forget this is the time of the Old Testament. There is very clear rules and regulations for the treatment of the ark. 
Only Levites were allowed to participate in the Levitical practices and ministering before the ark. 1 Samuel 6, 19 But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Bethshemesh, putting seventy of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Bethshemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God to whom will the ark go up from here? And when they sent the messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to guard the ark of the Lord. If you look at the names here, we go from Ichabod, the glory has departed from Israel, to Eliezer, the comforter. And Israel, under the leadership of Samuel, would be returning to God. And to do this, Samuel calls a prayer meeting. 1 Samuel 7, 2 The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, twenty years in all, and then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord, and with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths, and commit yourself to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtaroths, and served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, there's a spiritual concept at work in this account that is very serious. Don't get me wrong, it was grace and mercy for the season of Ichabod to come to an end. But the Ichabod season was filled with death and destruction and some raw forms of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is one of those harder parts of God to explain. Most can understand mercy and some really get grace, but we have to understand the other side of God's characteristics. Holiness and the fear of the Lord must be understood as well. We will talk about the holiness of God and the supernatural heavenly experiences of the prophets. And we talked about the concept of the fear of the Lord in the Mount Sinai episode. In this episode, we dealt with the Israelites who treated God like a good luck charm, the Philistines who treated God like a prize, and the people of Beth Shemesh who treated God with contempt. Having so much at play at this account, let's try to lump them all together to wrap it up. Let's start with the good luck charm. That we can call upon God as a last resort to grant us victory. Don't get me wrong, God grants salvation to those who authentically call on Him. But to call upon Him to endorse our sin and idol worship, this only leads to failure and greater judgment. And going further, like the Philistines, God is not a prize that we bring into our collective hearts with all of our other idols. This only creates a greater turmoil inside our hearts as we mix together truth and the authentic with the lies of sin and demons and false idols. If the Holy Spirit is to be brought into the temple of our hearts, our hearts need to be devoted to God and our sins need to go, or there will be great internal chaos like in Philistia. Finally, God is not something we can take lightly. It's clearly a message of the fear of the Lord. It goes back to the time at Mount Sinai when the fire of God came upon the mountain and as we suggested, the throne of heaven came to earth to try the hearts of men and renew covenants with his people. 
There must be preparation and softening of our hearts, and we must desire for relationship with God, or we will only have contempt for His holiness. To take something as holy as the Ark of the Covenant, which rested in the Holy of Holies, which God promised to rest upon. The God of the universe promised to rest upon the Ark. So to treat it with contempt is nothing but foolishness. Let us never take lightly the presence of the Lord and treat Him with contempt, like the people of Beth Shemesh. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as Israel experiences revival when Samuel calls a national prayer meeting and the Israelites show up in sackcloth and ashes while the Philistines show up with swords and weapons for war. The result is one of those amazing examples of the power of the blood of the Lamb in the Old Testament. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings.com at gmail.com.